0: For so Welcome, everybody, to Pitch Vision, episode 015. On today's show, we have guest Pat Clifton of Rugby. Today, I know you guys are going to be hyped for this. It's a great show. Yo, let's get ready for it. Pedal to the floor, maxing out it. You ain't messing with my click like I'm Kanye. Take it to 100 then I swear oh look up in the sky. Oh my god. What's the word word? Then he told me read Romans 12 and 18 And now I'm trying to live in peace till this rest in peace OMG death upon arrival y'all really couldn't see me like y'all fed it white with his eyes closed in a blindfold What up what up what up welcome to pitch vision where we get to talk to rugby influencers and media players administrators coaches and all those above who get a chance to do and make an impact in this wonderful sport that we all love my name is gift gift time a and I'm glad to be back with y'all we have a great show today Pat Clifton of rugby today uh, also head coach of the Lindenwood Belleville I don't actually know what their mascot is So I don't have anything to add to the end of it Is going to be on with us Great conversation with him uh, If you guys have not heard of Pat Clifton uh, I I don't really know what to do to help you except for explain it right here. You guys have probably seen some great articles that he has done. Um, you guys have gotten some you know, just great stuff. I mean, if you know Rugby Today, v- formerly known as Rugby Mag, you know uh, you know part of part of what I love of of the uh, Rugby Nerd Trio. That used to be part of the Rugby Today and just uh, a really great guy, really cool to talk with, representing his place really well. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, you know, I don't really have actually too much to add on this. It might be one of the shortest intros. I I mean, I had a really great time with Pat. I think you guys are going to get a lot of value out of this. I hope you guys get a great Rugby weekend coming up Because it's going to be even busier We've had, like, the <laughs> National side hasn't been too hot You know, we didn't do too well against Ireland, USA uh, The USA uh, U20s didn't do too great about against Canada uh, Freaking And now we got USA taking on Georgia Hopefully there will be some solid results From that And, uh, you know, I guess if you watch basketball Cleveland losing uh, That wasn't too hot for me either So Uh, anyways guys I'm not gonna even hold that much back I hope you guys enjoy it's gonna be a wonderful Thursday and uh, guys Pat Clifton enjoy At first, I want to say once again thank you for uh, for taking the time to be able to to uh, talk. I, I know you got a very busy schedule with uh, balancing literally life of other kids plus reporting and everything going through, man. So thanks again.
1: Hey, no, I appreciate it. Like everybody in rugby, like yourself, we all wear many hats. So, uh, but hey, I always make time to talk rugby. So.
0: <laughs> awesome, man. Uh, look, dude, just right off the bat, dude, how'd you get started with rugby?
1: Um, it was in college. I was at a poker game, and a friend of a friend who played rugby kept, you know, nudging me to come out and play. So I went out to a few practices, and I said, "Well, this is pretty cool." and Probably the typical story. I just fell in love with it and kept playing. Uh,
0: you know, it, was it was it like off of like uh, a bet? Was it like, "Look, if this hand doesn't go, I'm coming out. If the hand does, dude, you're just giving me everything that you own." <laughs> no, not
1: quite. It just uh, I, I, I was I bought big into the big poker craze mm-hmm. back around. 2003, 2004-ish, so I played a lot back then, and so that was kind of, the, you know, my biggest social vehicle was that, and then, uh, like, any 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, I thought I was pretty tough, and so somebody said, hey, you should come out to rugby, and so I did, and I just really enjoyed it.
0: Now, you know, was it, now, obviously, this was um in college, correct? Yep, yep. So, like, in, in high school, did you do other sports as well, or was it always...
1: Oh, yeah. I wrestled for six years. I, you know, played football. Um, I grew up playing soccer. My brother played Division One college soccer, um, and quickly ate my way into football and wrestling, and then. Uh Uh, yeah, those are my main sports in in high school and whatnot,
0: so... Football and wrestling, and and so, you go from this football wrestling, you go into the worldwide uh, sports of poker, you know, trying to get into the $100,000 pots, no, I remember uh, even in college, for me, uh, one of my best friends, he was the same way, too, like, they would have poker night every night and then start watching uh, uh, the uh, Poker World series every night on ESPN, so, uh, but... You know, you go from there. So that first time that you started playing, and you were playing where at?
1: Uh, the University of Central Missouri. It's a Division II school, about you know, forty-five minutes east of Kansas City.
0: So you're you're going, and okay, so you're at this small school. So what was it like? What was it like playing with with that team? Was it like was it like a social club kind of thing, uh, or very much so?
1: <laughs> we had been kicked off of campus uh, for previous generation shenanigans, so. We were actually a men's club, a Division three men's club for the first, my first couple of years, and then <clears throat> while we were still, while I was still there, we got back on campus, got into Gracie's University, and now they're a full college club again, but uh, it was very social, um, which, you know, obviously was attractive to me. <laughs> but no, it was a very much a social club. But we actually had a lot of, we probably had six or eight, depending on the given time, guys from the football team. So we were this wildly athletic, incredibly rugby stupid team they just went around and had a, had a great time. So some of the best weekends of my life and some of the dumbest decisions of my life should <laughs> probably fit into my college rugby uh, career for sure.
0: And You know, look, if you're not making the right mistakes in college, I don't know if you're really truly living, man. Like, is it, is it really living? Oh, man, my... Like, I've had talked talk to people where they're like, oh, yeah, my college career was, like, really chill. I'm like, I don't know if you lived. Like, I can't know... I don't know if I can call you a real adult until you've made some stupid mistakes. <laughs>
1: people that if, you know, from the ages of 17 to 22 or 23, uh, you know, most people... Probably are pretty lucky to uh, not get arrested or have any serious issues And I definitely was very lucky and I would say most people that play rugby in that time frame are probably <laughs> even more so uh, Even more lucky to not uh, spend any time in jail So uh, fingers crossed I, I didn't uh, made it through alive and now making much better decisions.
0: Hey, hey good. That, that's what we like to hear. You know, we showed a growth but uh, yeah. so you, you, you playing in that division? Playing in the Midwest? Like what what was the rugby like then? Because I have to assume that uh where where you have with Central uh, Central Southern Missouri, correct?
1: Central Missouri. Yeah.
0: Central Missouri, which is an N.C.RO. team now, correct? Nah, no, they're
1: D two. Um, there's probably about ten thousand people on the campus. Okay. They've been D two. They made D two playoffs after I was gone a few different times, but never went too far in them. But yeah, they. Um, yeah, it was a division two. I mean, it was a lot of travel. Right? Yeah. To be honest, that was the fun stuff. You know, we would always travel to Wichita. we travel to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and play the men's club there. we travel to Topeka. We'd play in the Wayne State tournament, which is probably the low-key, most fun social tournament in the country, um, when they've got 70, 80 teams all in one tiny little town, selling out every hotel room within a 30-mile radius, and sending school buses around to pick everybody up for the big toga party concert. <laughs> um, so it usually, I think it was Steel Panther. Is that the yeah. the, band. Actually, the band? Yeah. Um, so just going from town to town, kind of barnstorming and, and driving with your friends, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, now we bitched about the car rides, but uh, looking back, those are probably some of the funnest times I had with getting to and from the tournament. <laughs> oh,
0: so, like that's that's why I feel like I whenever I was at USF, I'd been invited to play with the team. And I didn't have, at the time, I didn't, I knew about rugby, right? But I didn't know, I was like, okay, this is like archaic football. Like, that's that's what I knew. I knew it was derived out from it. I was like, oh, you know, there's always those group of people who want to play some old-timey sport. There's going to be the cricket people, again, my arrogance in, in, in the time. is a cricket people, yeah, sure. And then, you know, maybe they're going to have like, you know, the the billiard, people will say billiards instead of pool and stuff like that. So just for the sake of old time. So I, ne- I never missed, I missed that part until I got out of college to be able to say, oh, wait, this thing is still real and then have those experiences along with that. Right. You know, for you, after you got out of college, so what was, what was the process that went from, you know, just being a regular rugby player to going journalist.
1: Well, I, I was a, I studied broadcast media was my major, and journalism was my minor in college, and I kind of went into that wanting to do sports, sports talk radio. Uh, you know, I was a pretty big football guy for a long time, um, basketball. Really, I loved all of your traditional American sports, and so I wanted to go into sports media, thinking sports talk radio. Um, And then, you know, in college I started doing a million internships and I, you know, I worked for a couple of scout.com affiliates and um, then I started actually getting paid as a freelancer and um, when I graduated college, I was just, uh, I was writing for a a scout.com affiliate that covers the Kansas City Chiefs, my hometown team, and that was a really great experience. I worked for them for about three years and I was looking for some more freelance journalism work to kind of supplement my income instead of... Making sandwiches at the local deli, <laughs> uh, which I did for five years throughout college, and then uh, uh, I stumbled upon Rugby Magazine and uh, rugbymag.com at the time, and hit up Alex Goff and just, um, just said, "Hey, let me do some work for you for free and, and show you that I can write a little bit." And then um, from there, just kind of, you know, I went from there to then I was a, pay I was a regular freelancer, and then I <clears throat> they put me on a retainer contract, and then I went full time probably 2012-13 um, with Rugby uh, Mag at the time, and then kind of the rest is history. But I always wanted to be in sports journalism. It just so happened that I picked up rugby in college, and uh, and and then you know was able to make a living afterwards. So pretty lucky for sure, and I'm, I'm grateful for <laughs> for being that lucky. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the progression of it. It's like a, it was a
0: perfect storm of timing when everything just would happen to to fit itself out to open you up to uh, your your future career. Correct.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was, it was huge, and and it was it was absolutely perfect timing. You know, at the time, Rugby Mag, when I graduated, Rugby uh, Magazine had been bought by United World Sports, uh, the people that own USA Sevens and whatnot, as we know it today, and uh, they were trying to make a big go of it. You could actually find Rugby Magazine and Barnes and Nobles on the on the newsstands, and so they were expanding and and spending money to try and go big at the time, and then. Um, you know they've contracted that effort and then kind of reined the costs back in. But if I would have graduated two or three years later, after they had already attempted that and, and not seen it be successful, then I would not have ever had this opportunity. And if I'd graduated a year or two earlier, I probably wouldn't have the opportunity. So uh, extremely lucky, and uh, I get reminded of that pretty often. <laughs> <right>? So <laughs> I'm very thankful for, for being that lucky. Man, it's
0: awesome. Um, you know, just just real quick. It, as a, as a sports journalist, you, who were your motivations? Like, did, do you have anybody that you loved reading or that you
1: kind of wanted to stylize off of? I don't know if there's anybody who I said, like, I want to be this person or this is the same kind of voice I want to have. I mean, growing up in Kansas City, uh, Joe Posnanski um, was a big columnist who's obviously, you know, worked for Sports Illustrated and gone big um, since then. And Jason Whitlock was a guy I read a lot. And I was around those guys when I was covering the Chiefs, and so to be in the press box with them, and 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 I learned a lot from them. Um, a lot of the NFL beat writers that I was around at the time was pretty cool. I'll never forget you know, when college, growing up, <clears throat> when I went to class, and I didn't skip, <laughs> when I didn't go to class, and I skipped, I had to be awake by 4.30 in the afternoon. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but like I said, I made some weird <laughs> I had to be awake by 4.30 in the afternoon to watch part of the interruption, and Woody Page would be on there, and 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 around the horn and then i remember sharing like a halftime hot dog with woody page at an nfl game thinking like this is pretty cool so um you know we did a i did nfl draft coverage at the chiefs uh facility one year and they had just switched general managers and the general manager was kind of making a statement to the media so they didn't feed us so whitlock who's obviously a very successful journalist went out and bought like 200 dollars worth of barbecue to feed the media and i thought that was a really kind gesture so yeah, I've, I've gotten to be around those pros and, and see how they operate was a huge part of my kind of development,
0: to be honest. Dude, and that's that's awesome. You know, you especially in this environment that, you know, everything's, we're moving towards a more digital era and you have these kind of journalists. We have what we've seen with ESPN with their constriction, their very odd, but set constriction. We see the, the change from a, a fact-based to an opinion-based kind of mission. For you, you know, you, you like you said, you mentioned guys like Jason Whitlock who are, ha, have become even more opinionated and have, have uh, you know, opened up more. And uh, Pazansky, who's done great. I've listened to him especially uh, on uh, other interviews like with uh, SI Media podcast, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, for you, do you feel that within rugby... That there's that 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 switch where it's like, are we becoming less of a fact base and more opinion, or do you think that we like, especially here in the U.S., have we not really uh, gotten out of that field yet because we haven't had that
1: momentum? Well, I think rugby is very different than um, regular sports media because we don't get to see the games. I mean, we get to see more games now than ever, um, but I think a game report is still really really valuable because. Let's say you know, you're know you busy, you're at a tournament in Louisiana somewhere, and you really want to know what happened with New York Athletic Club and Old Blue, well, you can take to Twitter. That's your only other option. You can't go see the game, right? Or you can go read about what happened. And as long as, you know, that was really the original purpose of sports writing, was these two teams are going to go play. You're not going to get to see it unless you're there. Let's tell you what happened, uh, the, the who, what, the how, and why sort of stuff. And I think that's still relevant in rugby. Um, there's, we still do a lot of just game reporting on Rugby Today for that reason and I think you'll find that on all the other, you know, the Rugby Breakdown, Golf Rugby Report, this is American Rugby because we want to know how it happened because we didn't get to watch it. And so that's, I think there's still a lot of that uh, uh, just straight reporting that's really important in Rugby Today. And I think that people are hung because now we've been trained to watch two talking heads on TV when you're watching sports that rugby people are hungry for that too. They want to not just know who's in the lineup. They want to know if it's a good lineup and why it's a bad lineup or why this person should be there and so on and so forth. So to be honest, I think that in rugby, at least this has been my uh, experience, that there's not enough content. Mm -hmm. And so people will consume it, whether it's opinion-based or fact-based. You know, us rugby nerds love to consume content as much as we possibly can. So I think there's room for all of it. But... The, the straight who what where why and how um, fact based straight reporting is still very important in today's rugby world.
0: No, and and, and that makes sense. So that that kind of goes. And I love that you use the term rugby nerds. I, I you know it's I don't think it's a, a colloquialism that is a negative because I don't think there's that many. And just right. to be able to say that you can have that amount of information. So as uh, you know. Moving into your time kind of during with Rugby Magazine, and, and you guys at the time being probably one of the fewest. I, I like I know the reason when I started playing back in 09 Rugby Mag was the only real source that I saw. And it was, I think, Rugby Mag and then...
1: There was American Rugby News at that time. Right.
0: It was like barely that. But the rest, Rugby Mag was the one that popped out right away. Everybody else's was kind of just like... Oh, I found them within the concurrent two, three years after. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, whenever you have uh, kind of that responsibility, being at at Rugby Mag, what were some of the the what were some of the lessons that you were able to take during your time there? Because I mean, at that point, you know, the Rugby uh, USA Sevens was just starting to really pop off. I know it had been around for a few years, but it's starting to pop off. You guys have this freedom from it being a physical publication you know what was that what was that those lessons that you were able to take from there uh, before the constriction
1: uh, there's a lot of stuff I mean first off Jackie Finland and, and Alex Goff who were there and my editors uh, and still friends to this day great friends and I've learned a lot from both of them I think Jackie's the best writer in American rugby period um, Alex is incredibly knowledgeable and has been around for a long time and I learned a lot of lessons. You know, I think one of the bigger lessons that, you know, I came from, uh, at the time I was covering the Chiefs, they had kind of a GM that had been there for a million years and was going out, and and a lot of the journalists would take shots at them. And you listen to Sports Talk Radio, right? they take shots at people all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, you usually don't have to see those people, or when you do, you're in a locker room, and there's a lot of other media reporters there. But if you write something negative about a rugby person, and you go see them at a random tournament, uh, there's Basically. not a lot of separation between <laughs> you and them, right? And, and not that uh, I ever take shots just to take them. I, I, I always try to be fair. I would I would never just be a, um, you know, to tear someone down for the sake of readership or to get extra hits. But I think that was kind of just the, to be, uh, I think the temptation coming up and when I did in today's media world to be like, to get views and retweets if you're just nasty as you can be and you pick on people all the time, if you're a Skip Bayless or those types of media person, um, that's what you're seeing constantly. That's what's being shoved down your throat. And so to kind of learn that you need to have some empathy and you're going to see these people and there's not going to be any kind of separation between you and them when you do see them. Um, you know, That was a big lesson for me, that there's a human being at the end of the other side of every story who, if you write the, something that paints them in a negative or positive light, you're going to see them someday and they're going to have feelings and thoughts about it and that's definitely something that i had to be more conscious of coming into it um, from kind of a, I you know i didn't write for espn or a big notification or publication but coming from a place where people are used to taking criticism to a place in rugby where let's be honest if a player shifts to the national team they've hardly been criticized their entire lives right by the best player on their high school team the best player on their college or club team and everybody's just told them amazing things they've never seen anything remotely negative in print or they can be construed as negative in print and um, I had to be conscious and aware of that I would say that was kind of one of the bigger things that I had to learn um, and there's been some instances where uh, I wrote some things and uh, people didn't like it and it made for some interesting altercations there oh. well, yeah, yeah, we uh, we could talk about a couple we'll, we'll talk about a couple of
0: those because I know it's, it's it's definitely come up but you know do you does does that kind of feel like it do you feel that gives it the, the the sport strength, or do you think it's weakness? Because I've always believed one of the biggest issues that rugby has, at least within the U.S. community, and I, I don't know if I can say necessarily internationally, just because the dynamics are a little different. But um, is that you know you can't be super hard hitting? Like one of the I, I was talking to uh, one of my friends, uh, talking to Tozan actually specifically. And uh, with, you know, viral rugby for please speaker sense. But um, we were talking about, you know, being able to go at, at, you know, be a little bit more dynamic at at different um, uh, uh, players, uh, not players, but, you know, organizations. And I was saying, I don't know if rugby is, has the lack of sensitivity enough to do it because the excuse can always be outside of maybe like a few, a handful of teams and even barely at the national side is that. There's always a we don't have enough resources. So the lack of resources prevents us from being able to take any real critique. If you did it to somebody in college outside of something being law breaking, you know, if you say, oh man, this coach and this team was poor because of this and this, and we've seen this consistency, and you guys just are a terrible coach. Well, it'd be like, well, I'm a volunteer, you know, we're an ad- we're low administration, we don't get yeah. to own too many, uh, you know, of, uh, we don't get to do too much, we lack money, the school support, blah, 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 and so, like, any critique that can be had is immediately dampered by this automatic, for lack of a better word, victimization that occurs within each of the teams, yet... Whenever it comes to finding different means of improving, you you don't get to see that improvement because teams run on this ridiculous current pattern of action. Where if we're talking about resources, well, we're gonna go back. I'm sorry, we're gonna do charity or we're we're gonna we're gonna do donations and be nonprofit and etc. like that and uh, uh, try and bring in money in this antiquated way that everybody's just been doing for so long.
1: You know, uh. I think depending on what group or person or team you're talking about, it varies. But you have to be sensitive to that, and that's a line you have to toe. I mean, if you know there's a volunteer coach at X University, and you know they work very hard, but they can't compete against a paid coach or a paid program like Life or Lindenwood, and they get beat by 90, well, you're not going to write uh, about how they got beat by 90 with any kind of vitriol, and that's probably the right thing to do. So. Mm-hmm. I think that it just makes you more sensitive to um, to that kind of human uh, element in rugby that we all know about. Um, but at the same time, kind of this sounds bad, but my default gear, my default gear is to be a dickhead, right? Be <laughs> <laughs> critical. And I think that in my time in writing rugby, like I've held USA Rugby accountable, or I've tried to. Um, I've I've held Nigel Bevel accountable, I've held coaches accountable, players accountable, at least that's been my attempt. And I I do believe in rugby or in media in general as being a watchdog for whatever you're covering, whatever beat it is, whether it's sports or politics or city government or whatever it is. I think that that's very much part of our role, Um, especially when you have a membership organization like USA Rugby where anyone you meet in the American rugby community is a member. Those members, in my opinion, have the right to know about what's really going on um, in their world and where their dues and their taxes are actually going and and how and 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 how it gets spent and so on and so forth and then I think that if somebody is a professional if they're drawing a paycheck to to do what it is they do then you know they open themselves up to being uh, held publicly accountable as well so I think it's just about being fair and that's not always the easy thing to determine what the fair thing is um, but it's definitely something that I think about anytime I write something that I know somebody is going to read this and think, uh, and, and and it's going to pull out an emotion that's not so happy. Yeah,
0: you know, is whenever you you are doing your writing, and obviously it's 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 a topic to topic situation. But is there often a like you? Is there a default angle that you usually are trying to find? Is it kind of like um, you know uh, if if we talk maybe college? It's Oh, what are the, 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 is it like, I like to pinpoint what is the disconnect, the miscommunication that happened in college? Or like if it's pro, it's like, what is the, the issues that are happening with this program? Or if it's USA rugby, is, are you guys utilizing your resources? Do you have any kind of like angles that you typically like to go into initially when you write and then kind of flesh out what the, uh, the rest of the article comes from that, that point?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think I have an overarching agenda for any of these things. You just kind of take each story and, and figure out, like, if it's a story, then that means it's important to someone. Why is it important? And then kind of go from there. Um, so if I'm writing about something that happened in the college game, I've got to figure out well, why is it worth my time to write it. And, and if it is worth my time, then those reasons that make it worth writing about or worth reading about are the, kind of become the driving factor behind it. Oh, yeah. No, and that
0: does. I mean, and 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 I get that because each each any art, obviously, any article that we do, you know, is is gonna have its own essence to it each time. But you know, I know for me, uh, like whenever I do an article, I I will honestly typically end up going one of. I really like to go one of two ways. It's either are we going to we're gonna pinpoint uh, a problem that is a systemic problem with the issue or we are going to try and take advantage of the highlight the funness of an issue and then if I find something in between then I can talk about it there but I'll usually go into those two dynamics but of course like anything else you 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 do end up finding out more I guess the the article takes a life on its own I guess for me after after a certain point
1: no it does and I like I I I see what you're saying with you know you try to take it in two different ways and uh, you know, there have been groups before who, and I can't even, you know, this sounds terrible. I'm not going to try and remember some of the URLs or some of the, but I, you know, Matt Trinari and Eric Tabor, um, both former USA rugby people. Matt um, uh, was the head coach at, at Michigan, and, and uh, Eric worked at uh, Wheeling Jesuit as an assistant coach. But they, they started a website where they said, we're going to try to be positive about rugby. So anything we write is going to be written from a positive light for a growth perspective. We want people to come here and, read happy, fuzzy, warm thoughts and um, that will help grow uh, rugby and, and, and that's awesome. I, that's fantastic that that's your view. I've never thought that, and I've had people email me to say, why did you write this negative piece? It's just going to make rugby look bad. Well, my audience is, is you, it's mm-hmm. you as a member, it's anybody who pays taxes in the USA Rugby, it's anybody who cares, who's already a rugby person. I'm not trying, my job is, and this is the way I look at it isn't to get non-rugby people to be rugby people. I write stories like that that, that just come up, you know, when you write about Carlin Isles or um, you write about different human interest stories that I think could be shared and will do that. But I don't think that that's my, my goal. I think my goal is to entertain, to uh, give news to, and uh, to educate and, and the people that are already in the American rugby community and to uh, – uh, be a watchdog for uh, when I need yeah. when, it, when I need to be. I mean, <clears throat> the the pro story needed to be written about Doug Schoeninger and and the story about you know they not paying the bills. Somebody needed to write it, and I was lucky enough that I I am lucky enough that I've got a, a company behind me, and it's just not me and a company that I've started on my own. To where if I get sued because somebody with deep pockets wants to sue me for defamation. That I've got people that can help me do that. And so I think it was my responsibility as somebody in the rugby community who was lucky enough to have that luxury to write that story. Not because I personally wanted to take Doug down, but because people needed to know what's going on in pro rugby, the truth, the real stories behind it. And I was the person who had you know, the fortune of... Having a company behind me that was willing to stand behind me if I got sued and, and so that was my responsibility So I felt like I had to write that for the rugby community So I think that that's that's the way I look at what my publication is and what my role is and If people disagree with that, that's fine And if they agree with it, then great,
0: you know, and I think that that's that's really great because I think that you have to have that I think In each roles like like I said if I'm if I'm a person who's like all about the fun stuff but I, I'm missing out on the series. There has to be someone to keep it accountable. And I thought, especially like when you used like you used the example of the pro article, great example of something that needed to be done. But I've always found, especially in in terms of the audience, and in it, I've talked about it in private conversation and a little bit critically, you know, publicly. But you know, I, I've always found that the 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 rugby community in the U.S. Uh, has a um, Ironically, a, a very uh, exclusionary concept to newness So it's unless we've kind of kept within this party line of We're all camaraderie and we bring in everybody And it's like all fun all the time Yeah, rugby, better than football And other football if you're in the other countries So soccer when you're here You know, it's, it's this concept that that is pushed over and over. That it's it's like trying to be a a Stepford wife, where all the negative is just kind of like trying to be hypnotized out, and all you see is just this this golden you know era. But at the same time, in doing that, it it has prevented, in my opinion, a lot of ability to change. Uh, you know, one one thing I always use as an example is is the concept of uh, celebration in rugby, and I know this is a sensitive subject. And the fact that it's a sensitive subject is my is kind of the point. It's like you you you'll have you know maybe a team like I remember uh, American International. Like the kids, they would score, you know, they'd have a little bit of fun, and then they'd go back. Right? It wasn't anything super prolonged. Like it wasn't like a whole derived you know choreograph- cho- you know choreographical series. But then you get you go to the message boards or on Facebook, and then you hear people completely. Oh my God! How dare you don't just you know hand the ball over? And how dare you try and have fun? Well, obviously they're not saying have fun. They're saying disrespect the sport, and right. you know you're becoming like every other. And it's it it seems so purposefully exclusionary to anything new that can come in. That it takes away any of the plausible identity that you can actually create. Uh, it's it's kind of like this repetitive expat version of rugby that keeps being attempted to play out, but you never can bring anything new in. Uh, it is is that something that you've seen, or is that just me?
1: <laughs> no, I I look, I see it as you know. I coach now full time. That's my my full time job at the moment. I've done, I've coached now for six or seven years, and uh, uh, as a coach, you, you see that all the time with new players that come into it you know as a high school coach you want football players on the team because they're going to be fast and they can tackle and they can run hard and they're tough kids um, or else they wouldn't be playing football (laughs) but at the same side of that is you want to bring new people in new talent new athletes in well this is what they have seen from athletes their entire lives and so if you want to open it up to new people you can't have a carlin isles and his speed without carlin isles and his personality same thing with perry baker I'll take Perry Baker's all day and some try celebrations if that's what it takes. So you can't just expect everybody to come in and be. Uh, I love the Stepford Wife analogy <laughs> that you put together and become rugby robots and you know pretend. I, I think that there's a healthy mix. If you're going to bring new people in and you want to bring in Joe sports fan and, and and Joe sports player into the rugby community, which we desperately do, mm-hmm. which we desperately need in order to put this game where we want it to be. Um, in the American sporting landscape then you have to have a give and take does that mean that we have to get rid of the ethos of rugby where we're hugging each other and, and, and um, doing fellowship after games absolutely not but I think that it, does that mean that we have to be uh, okay with some, some tries and some people celebrating with tries absolutely that's fine and you s- look around the world I mean I think a lot of people get stuck in it's not just a rugby thing it's a, it's a generational thing I mean Quade Cooper doing backflips when he scores a try, you know. Chris Ashton always doing the splash every time he scores. People have fun, and and I think that uh, you know Simon Zebo likes to celebrate when he scores, you know, putting up the the Z in his hands. You know, those they take they look at American sports just like the kids that are growing up looking at American sports and want to emulate them and be like them. And I think it's a generational thing more than it's a rugby thing. But I think that people use the excuse of rugby's ethos to back up their kind of generational argument against you know celebratory stuff and you know my rule of thumb with my guys is look there's a fine line between celebrating something you just did appropriately and taunting the other team uh inappropriately and as long as you don't cross that line we're all good
0: no and i definitely i agree with that and look you know uh like i said Obviously, I can I can go into a rant, and I probably will a little bit uh, on this on this arena. Um, but you know, even taking it up uh, another level, and and you know, for me, obviously, I, I love focusing on college. It's it's probably my favorite part because I think it has the most. Uh, in my opinion, I think it has the highest chance of having a direct impact on people going on on the sport going forward and for those. Like, yeah, I'm the
1: same way.
0: So, you know, when one of the other things that I always listen to people and I've had this conversation and uh, talked with you know, a few people is when it comes to how much the money coming into the sport. So my, I've been under the belief that, you know, uh, the concept, the conceptualization of professional rugby uh, in the U.S. is not, has never been about how much money is on the, there or how it is in uh, on the field. But it's the culture that's based around it. So, I, I've, I've always, you know, I've always been a believer that there's been no instance so far that rugby, and, and you know, people use France, but there's been no per instance where rugby has gotten sports uh, entertainment correct, fully correct at any of the levels. It's better in one place than it is in another, but it, it's not fully there. Where you see players getting money, and considering it being the second third largest team sport in the world that you know you have players at your highest getting a million five per year and that's like super pushing it and then everybody else on average is maybe around 50 to 50 40 30 000, uh per year and so then you bring it to the states and people you know, they get excited about this concept of professional rugby and this idea that that changes the game in a major way, but also subsequently get scared of the concept of more money being pumped into the sport. If there's more money pumped into the sports, players getting more money, that means everybody becomes more individualistic and now you have a disintegration of like you've mentioned before, the ethos of the sport versus Actual an actual growth. Um, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I've been a believer that that that's that idea that fear again has been a holdback for most people in in being able to take the sport to the next level. You know, for you, from what you see, and and you know, what what do you think when it comes to more money being added to the sport? Do you think that 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 changes the way that people will play the game, like, or you know, do you do you have a uh, a different idea on it.
1: No, I, I Money, you know, more money, more problems, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but I agree that that's the case, and I agree that it will change some aspects of rugby. Um, and, and and I think that's why rugby held on to being amateur for so long. I mean, it's only been professional since 1995, and that's pretty bananas when you consider how profet- how, how much earlier it could have gone, considering how much the world cares about it, especially in the big money countries. Um, and I think that that people's fear of that, fear of the new, like you discussed, and fear of how it would change rugby, and and I think change kind of the the, the ethos of rugby and the and the culture of rugby as, as was a big reason for why uh, people have been reticent to accept the professional game. But I think now we've seen it, uh, what twenty some odd years on, thirty, I'm horrible at math, whatever it's been, that uh uh that. We can have professionalism. People can make a chunk of change. And we can also still keep rugby as rugby. You know, if you remember Dahani Tackles the Globe when Dahani Jones, NFL player, went. Absolutely. He went with, I think it was Austin Healy to the Leicester game. And the players still make the rounds after their professional match to all the little pubs to have a beer with the fans and say thank you. And so I think rugby people will always work extremely hard to make sure that the soul of rugby doesn't get lost even when more money comes into it now there's going to be battles um, and there are going to be people that try to change rugby but I think rugby people uh, are especially American rugby people are so passionate and so uh, diligent about it that we won't let the game be taken away from us just because there's more money pumped into it and that money is a necessary evil we've got to have it um, in order to get the Eagles to where we want them to be which is I think that's why everyone in American rugby roots for professional rugby, not because they hope that you know some pe- really fast guys are going to make extra money. They root for it because they know that that's the missing link between the United States national team that we all root for. Again, it's paid for by us as members. In a way, we're all we're like the the people uh, of Green Bay who own a part in the Packers. You put a five hundred bucks in, and you're a, an ownership of the Packers. Well, Eagles are my team because I pay money to the organization that pays for them. Um, and, and I think the missing link is that uh, uh, is once we have professional rugby, we can develop a little bit better and develop skills, get better athletes involved, and then our team that we all take ownership of will, will be the better for it. And So I think it's a necessary thing. And at any time someone's making money and they're not scamming people or screwing people over in the game of rugby, I think it's a positive thing. Whether it's a coach or a media member or uh, somebody that's running camps, if you're making money in the game of rugby, I think that that's a good sign that rugby's going in the right direction. You know,
0: speaking of professional rugby overall, uh, so I'll say for myself, I've been very critical of of each of the uh, iterations. I, I'm calling this era the uh, the era of the rug, professional rugby bubble. Uh, that you know, we're just just consistently just putting something in there as it grows until this thing bursts out. You know, I, I I've been a big believer that when it comes to professionalization uh, as i said earlier it has very little to do with how you pay players on the field and more so on how you create a culture around it you know each year you know we've gotten something new it's it's been the national rugby football league first then we got pro rugby now we're at the MLR and i guess to some extent the uh, super series 7. Super 7 there you go yeah and uh, you know anytime i've talked about it my wit dries out just like this because I'm just like, all right, well, cool. Who's next up to take this, uh, the stand to say we finally got the answer right? Um, but I, I've, for me, I've never felt like the culture has has been there. I I see the teams even in this iteration, and you know, hopefully, you know, as a, because you got to disclaim it. We hope it all does well, but you know, you know, it this this iteration constantly makes me nervous because it, one, it it, it feels like it, it's trying to rush something that you, you don't understand why it's being rushed. I've been a believer that if anyone is trying to create a professional league, you should take three years of straight PR and community development, come out, roll it out during a high time, maybe Olympics what right. yeah, crazy time right you know and and then be able to have a community and a culture and a test product that you can use over a period of time to to create this because a players that the the, the idea of a paying a player doesn't and even if they're doing you know subsequently work every day does not in itself make better players it just it it gives people more time yes But I I don't think it makes better players. I don't think it makes better professionalism itself. And I think ultimately, without that culture, you constantly see this bubble rise and fall, rise and fall each time. You know, for you, I mean, what's your thoughts?
1: Well, I think what's important, uh, daily training environment is a big buzzword in the American rugby community. And I I believe in a daily training Mm. environment. If people's not, I I don't, you know, you want to give them enough money to where they can think about rugby and think about rugby comfortably. Right you know again what going professionalism gives us isn't um you know great now people can buy fancier cars what it gives us is it, it affords them the ability to spend more time on rugby so now full time coaches get to instead of make a practice plan on their way you know from work to practice they get all week to think about a practice plan now we can get dive down into the analytics of rugby we can not just watch film and say we had this many knock-ons and we lost this many scrums. You can go even further and really analyze the game. And players can spend more time in the meeting rooms and film rooms doing all that. They can get more vital reps on their their basic core skills. So I I firmly believe that more daily training environments is what we need in America and now there are a lot of daily training environments that aren't professional. You know, right. Dartmouth Dartmouth um, sure the coaches are paid but the, co- the kids aren't on scholarship, they're just regular college students, but they're immersed in a daily training environment. Um, you know, Cal Cal's varsity, but those kids aren't on scholarships, they're just immersed in a daily training environment. Exactly. And um, even though they're not getting paid to do it, or they're not getting the, tra- the things that we think of uh, their counterparts in traditional sports at their universities are getting to partake in those sports. So the reason professionalism helps us get more daily training environments is because people have to eat right people have to pay bills and so if we allow them to do that by going professional then they all of a sudden can now afford to spend the time to become better rugby people whether it's a, as a player administrator or coach so i think a daily training environment is is the answer and we need more of them and unfortunately those are uh, pretty impossible to come by without money and you know as far as the pro leagues look i i think that You know, professional soccer in America has been around since the 60s. Mm -hmm. Leagues have come and gone. Pele played professional soccer in the United States in the 60s. In the 70s, they had it. They were playing in professional football stadiums. We've had indoor professional soccer since the 70s. And leagues come and go, they fail, they fold. And uh, it's a whole lot of trial and error that has led to finally the MLS. Somebody with enough money to spend enough time losing it and the bandwidth to grow the game to the point where they weren't losing money anymore came along, and, and it's going to take a lot of trial and error. There might be 10, 15, 20 leagues, and there may be 10, 15, 20 years before we get something that's ultimately sustainable. Um, and so I think it's exciting that you know people always equate rugby to soccer. Like we are now, yeah. this many years ago, or build your participation, and you can get the same things that soccer has because it's the largest participation. If participation sport in america but uh if we were in a point where we had people willing to throw out press releases and not just throw out press releases but throw out money and attempt something then i would say we're farther behind than we thought so now that we're at least finally in the era where people are putting their money on the table i think it's a positive sign even mm-hmm. though we would all much rather get to the sustainable part that uh, we know where you know people are making money on and that we know that it's going to exist and that they everything runs perfectly we'd all like to fast forward to that right but i don't think that that's something you just get to do so at least the fact that we're in the trial and error part to me is an exciting part of it and i think the people that participated in pro rugby um, while they're still pissed off that they're missing paychecks and they're pissed off that maybe they relocated to a new city to try something and it didn't pan out and they you know they jumped in with two feet and, and and it didn't work out. I don't think any of them regret it. Right, we all were grateful that, at least for a time they got to say that their professional job was rugby and and they're hopeful that they'll get to do more of it later on.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I, that does make sense. And I one first part I agree with you the daily training environment. I had, obviously that 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 is key. So I 100 percent agree with you on that one. And obviously, uh, being that that purpose of being able to get people to eat. I guess for me it's just that. We, we, everybody, like you said, keeps comparing rugby to soccer. And for me, I'm like, look, I will look at rugby more so as Uf, UFC and less of soccer. I feel like soccer has been so overplayed as the as the purpose, but I don't think it's as similar as people make it out to be. Outside of it just being another European-based sport that happened to be in the U.S. and oh, it's run by a bunch of expats. Again, this expat central centralized conception of how to do sport i look at something whereas as ufc an offset of you know a bass of boxing that we know that took a concept that was considered you know human chicken fighting by you know some people something that rugby knows very well in that idea of you know frat boy you know you know idea then kind of tightened it to be this streamlined idea. Of course that there's a trial and error to it, but what it did do was create a community around it. Obviously rugby has its niche market. It has its niche people here in the US. So you know that there's something to build around it. But what what UFC did uh instead of saying, well look, guys, we're just gonna just keep throwing some stuff out and you know eventually you know and I I guess to a smaller extent it did but it, you know, eventually something will be able to pop out. No, they they kind of were, all right, here's our few teams here. Here's our few guys here. Let us just create these storylines around these guys each time. We got, you know, uh, Randy Couture. We got uh, uh, freaking, um, uh, God, what's his name? Iceman. And, you know, you got all these, Chuck Liddell, all these guys like that. And you have this story based around them constantly and you just keep pushing, and then whenever you promote them, key term, promote them, you you then subsequently create this this grandiesque effect around it, and people start wanting to say, what is this? What is this crap that you're talking about? And you bring it in, and da 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 So when it comes to rugby, while I understand that there's a development that goes along with it, I feel like everybody keeps trying to rewrite the playbook when you have multiple playbooks. Like The one benefit that you can at least say for rugby in the U.S. is that you are in the one country that actually has perfected sports marketing and sports management. And I, I'll say that with every strength. Any country can come at us. It's my one patriotic thing. You know, US number one and sports uh, based management marketing. So when it comes with the professional side, I always worry that I always get annoyed at the fact that they, they come in and it's kind of doing the same thing. Like the idea of wanting to use the clubs with MLR. It's a nice idea. But I don't hear any stories around it. Like I just hear, "Oh, cool! It's the Austin Huns. Great! Hey, it's New Orleans. Hey, look, Glendale." But you know, what does that mean for a guy who's not from that area? Let's say, a casual fan. Why do I care? And yeah. I feel like that's the part that's kind of ended up hurting. It because of course the money is good. Of course the money should be is is a necessity, necessary evil. But if you're not doing those things that create that fielding environment like why why are you expecting something to change in it if you're still so scared of
1: doing what you already see works you're not wrong i mean the ufc is actually a pretty good example because ufc was banned for a while i mean the ufc had a lot of unsuccessful years before somebody got the investors who had the money to really throw the promotion and the marketing behind it that you're speaking of and and then you know actually all the ideas on the wall, and and we're lucky enough to have the one that stuck with the the ultimate fighter um, to really grow the the sport, and and does that mean that there there aren't a lot of really smart people who had other ideas for the UFC and how it could succeed um, that ended up being bad ideas? But uh, no, I, I think there probably were a lot of those people. And I think what you learn every time there's a professional venture that happens and fails, you learn lessons from it. We, as a rugby community, learn lessons from it. The potential investors that are kind of hovering around rugby see, oh well, they did this wrong. So as long as we correct those things, then we'll make the next one different. And we collect data. You now know how many people were willing to pay X amount uh, uh, for X amount of games in these X cities um, with basically zero marketing money spent whatsoever. Well, we know that. That's probably about you know somewhere between one and two thousand a game if you play professional rugby and just tweet tweeting Facebook about it and spend no money, then you'll get one to two thousand people. So now somebody else is going to step in and spend a whole bunch of money in the marketing side, and we'll figure out how much more people how many more people that produces. So it's all it's not just I don't think guys in their own vacuums throwing their idea up against the wall. I think it's people collecting data and and using as you said there's a lot of different playbooks. And um, uh, maybe somebody sees MLS as the model, somebody sees UFC as the model. And remember, professional sports is a lot deeper than just the ones that we see on network television all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I freaking we did a the Rugged Matrix America podcast a couple of years ago with a guy I know who's involved in the the I think I think it's still called this the National Women's Soccer League the NWSL and he owned a semi-professional, and I don't mean semi-professional in the way we think of semi-pro football where no one gets paid and you actually pay to participate that's a lot more like club rugby. I mean semi-professional where these guys are on game contracts and some of them on salaries on not even the top tier but a second tier professional indoor soccer team. And professional indoor soccer has been around since long before you or I were born and so has independent hockey. So has minor league baseball. And so I think when people think that rugby needs to go uh, uh, professional, we all expect and want, we assume professional means NBA, NFL, MLS, but why not it let it be at least as professional as independent league hockey or AAA baseball or independent professional baseball? Um, you know, those, I, I think that those are baby steps first. You don't just get to, there's a lot of failed football, professional football before the NFL actually succeeded. True. And, um, and I think you could point to pretty much any sport that's made it to that level in, in America, and you'll see the same thing. So I think professionalization is going to be a frustrating time, but an exciting time as well. Awesome. All right, I, and I just want to touch on
0: one more subtopic, and before I end up letting you go, you know, going into the college area. You know, we now that you're a coach, you're 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 in it. You're you're in the mix of of the the college rugby. uh, Depending on what person you're talking to, scatter chart of conceptualization. You know. I've always been a big believer that the one thing that rugby has over other sports is you have an equitability of, of men and women that can at least play. The rules change, are staying the same across the board, all right? As with that, you have the advent of digital streaming, and so those are two areas that you can build, you know, use as a waiting ground to establish a market and, and go from there. Within college rugby, you know, there's – we have this this huge spread of what's supposed to be where, like how do, who's a national champion, you know what 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 does this mean? Who's going from what place? For you, you know, you know, it, with and I know it's a very broad question, but what do you see as being the quintessential issue that has been with college rugby so far?
1: Man, there's a lot. I mean. Uh... And I, I don't want you to just uh, continue to pee on uh, uh, USA Rugby cereal, but I think that, and, and we, the thing is about USA Rugby is I say USA Rugby, they think that, that I'm criticizing everybody under the USA Rugby umbrella. I'm not. I'm also. I, I may not mean the national people in the national office that have nothing to do with that particular sector of the game. Right. I may mean the uh, the volunteer. Uh, Uh, administrators that uh, make up uh, the College Management Council or some other body of committee uh, that that makes decisions. So I think that just as a whole USA Rugby volunteers and otherwise has mismanaged the college game for a long period of time and college was and I I believe is still the case remains to be the largest sector of the pyramid from college club high school college is still the largest chunk there's more people playing rugby in college than there are playing in any other sector right and so for them to put that kind of money in and for the national championships to really not change the experience or the cost over a 30-year time frame um that became unacceptable to a lot of people and they say and so you've seen in the last six seven eight years people want more autonomy um and they would say we gave you 30-plus years to get the game right and to get sponsorships and, to, and to, to advance it. You did next to nothing with it. So now give us our, our freedom here to, to take a run at it ourselves. And I think that that's what spurred um, the uh, advent of conferences. instead of. I mean, it used to be that you had a territorial union, then you had a geographical union, then you had a local area union, and colleges belonged to those and were administered by those just like clubs were and high school teams were and every level of rugby was run by that. So you'd have people who were a high school coach or maybe a women's club uh, player and maybe a division three men's club player making decisions about how college rugby's supposed to operate, which didn't make sense. And so that brought on the advent of conferences. And then once the team started to realize that they hold the power, that um, they could control their own destiny and not have to wait for somebody else to tell them that, then you saw splinter competitions like the Varsity Cup and the America, the ACRA, um, and uh, now you've seen the ACRA kind of or the ACRC, sorry, kind of change. Um, they started out and they were going to do a fall 15s competition and they did a knockout competition, and then they said, "All right, we're going to do bowls, and then we're going to do so on and so forth." And that's the same thing you've seen with sevens, um, you know, with the CRC and then USA Rugby creating a rival event. And on the women's side, it's just as splintered, if not more, with the different, you know, NIRA and the the varsity, the NCAA-sanctioned sports, and the ACRA. And people have now, they say, you know, like I said, we gave you USA Rugby 30 years. You didn't advance it the way we thought. We want power, our uh, you know, to make our own decisions. And now everybody's kind of new in making their own decisions. And some people are making them just for their team and what's good for them. Some people make it with What's good for the nation in mind, and what's good for rugby as a whole in mind, or what's good for this clump of teams in this geographical area in mind? What's good for big state schools um, right. uh, that uh, is different for what's good for a life university or Linda Wood Belvedere. Um, You know, so you've got all these different people deciding what is their priority in their decision making, and it was still very new in that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's we're all trying to find our feet on how we make our decisions now that we have the power because we didn't have it for 30 years. So I think you have to give some people in college be a break when you consider that we're so new and in, in having this much power. But at the same time, if, you're, if, you, if you just let people be content with what they have, then you're not really going to strive to get any better. So you still also have to hold people accountable too and, and hold each other accountable to move the game forward. So I think that, egos have been big especially on the men's side and helping cre- create this as divisive a culture as we have now and people need to push those aside and um, it's not just egos but I think we're now at a point where we've people have gone off and tried these different things that work for them and, and now it's time to try and reunite the clans and if there are people that are standing in the way of that um, then they need to be mowed over and <laughs> put somebody else in their position and let's let's Get this thing together and and bring it back together. So we're actually now that we can get on national television and we've seen it, let's put together the package that national television exposure deserves and that rugby deserves, so that we can take the next step.
0: Yeah, and and I, I agree with you fullheartedly. You know, I, I I've always claimed myself to be somewhat of a rugby libertarian in the sense that you know the national body that's you you guys take care of your overarching thing national insurance making sure uh laws and rules but then once you go underneath that element then it it does privatize out almost in the same way the NCAA is different than the bowl series individual committees different than the award committees those are all individual private industries um but I, I guess you make a perfect point that this is new. And I, that one I think I always miss a little bit because, you know, as much as I'm critical of, of people, I, I do realize that, you know, with newness comes mass confusion. And with mass confusion comes, you know, obviously just throwing any kind of idea that we can perfectly have uh, yeah. out there, whether it works or doesn't work. Now, look, <laughs>
1: I'm doing a good job of being political by click <laughs> you know, on here, but you get a few beers in me. You know, <laughs> you know, I got this all figured out there, you just <laughs> leave it and we have the perfect scenario. So I am also impatient and I also want us to just hurry up and get to the end. But if you sit down and think about it, you understand why we haven't gotten there yet. Right. But I think that hopefully we're near. I think that um, it's time to to really to do it. And I think we've got a CEO in Dan Payne who sees the value in college rugby and um, will work to do that. Now, his, he was – Given, you know, he went in and he is kind of like Pimp My Ride, right? He went, he got his, his ride, you know, USA Rugby got their ride pimped by Nigel and they <laughs> Right. They put a popcorn maker in the back and, like, you know, have all these bells and whistles, but the engine doesn't work. Right. So here comes Dan Payne, think he's getting this sweet vehicle to drive around and he's got to replace the engine, replace the car, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I don't think people realize how much work he has in his hands or how bad a shape the union was when he took it over. But it was in bad shape. And so he really does care about college rugby and values it. But, man, they've got to be able to balance a checkbook um, before they he can make some of those things. And I know he's now starting to catch his breath a little bit and, and is starting to make some of those big decisions to help the college game out and push it forward um, and starting to get involved in that. Um, but give him a break because the to-do list he took over was pretty
0: incredible yeah no i I agree with that one i i and for me honestly i don't think it's fair to judge uh dan for anything less than two years of work like he's been in it six months like you can't there's not anything you can do like anybody who would assume that he has this magical ability to make everything end up working I, i i think is well, they're assholes, to be honest with you, and you
1: know, and Just imagine the president. How long is it going to take the president after Trump to Right? <laughs> to rewrite? <it. laughs> this is the rugby. <laughs> so you know,
0: I, I, I'm a big believer, but I think it does then come back down to the teams. Like, you know, I've always when I, when college teams and I, we were mentioning this earlier. When it comes to college teams, you know, again, I've I've always said I don't think that they. ...can move forward because a lot of the times they're not able to be accountable for everything. And and it's by no fault of their own, per se. It's, you know, your team, your player-run team, a volunteer coach, most likely, and, you know, you get to have these guys around twice, maybe three times a week. You know, four if you're lucky. So they, they can't do everything, and so you're, you have a tendency to fall back into old habits. But with that being said... I do feel that a lot of teams are resistant to the change because that's all they know. You no, know, So for you, you know, you go into Lindenwood Belleville, you know, you, you get this full-time head coaching decision. What is what is it, and, and if you can, you know, what is it that the rugby team is able to provide for the college? What's, what's the value? Because in the end, that's what you know, this all comes down to how valuable it is to the university.
1: No, no, there's no doubt. I mean, the reason this boom is happening is because colleges are looking and getting more creative in ways to boost enrollment. College enrollment as a whole is down. The the college, the competitiveness uh, for that tuition dollar is higher now than ever. Um, and, and people are starting to see probably second guess the real value of a college education as the cost of college soars. So every university is looking for ways to get kids to come to the university and, um, and, and and add enrollment dollars. So while we do give financial aid and we do give scholarships that help make it affordable, sometimes it's more affordable than uh, we, for a kid that, you know, let's say a kid was gonna go to the University of Tennessee or lindenwood Belleville, the University of Tennessee would have just been a general student. Well, maybe I can, you know, depending on a bunch of different factors, get it to where it'd be cheaper for him to go to school at lindenwood Belleville than it would be at Tennessee. But most, more often than not, I'm just, with our financial aid and scholarships, just getting it to be as affordable as whatever that kid's other decision was gonna be, mm-hmm. and then the rugby factor's on top of it. So the school is still making money off of the tuition dollars of those kids. And that's the same way in Davenport, at Wheeling Jesuit, even though that's now a ship with a lot of holes in it, um, at Life, at Lindenwood, at American International College. Any of, basically, any of these colleges that you probably never heard of, that are doing um, varsity rugby and have a full-time head coach this is why is because so they can boost enrollment dollars and so that's something that we are aware of all the time i'm always being reminded about my recruiting goals and my roster goals and that is um it's definitely a burden there's no doubt about it because as a rugby person you get hired to coach rugby all you want to do is win rugby games and build an awesome culture and environment and help develop people through rugby you don't want to worry about the dollars and cents of it mm-hmm. but you know, with power comes great responsibility, and so if I want to keep rugby and keep providing a really great daily training environment, a really great rugby experience for the kids that we bring in, then I've got to make sure that on the financial end, it makes sense for the university so that they continue to see the value in us. We'd all like to think that through the CRC or through the Varsity Cup or through, you know, the broadcasting and web streaming um, that gets done for the college game that, that's the value that you're you're spreading your name through rugby and you're helping build your brand because that's why traditional college athletics exist. Mm -hmm. even though they run at a loss athletic departments do it exactly right they exist because they're the front porch to the university and they are a marketing tool basically rugby's not at that stage at any level no one no, no university is that says rugby gives us so much publicity that it's worth shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to operate that team that's just not a realistic expectation, we're not there yet and I don't know that we ever will be. So you have to continue to show the value and, and that's enrollment dollars. And that's going to be the case more and more as this college loan bubble bursts at state schools, smaller state schools. Now it's not a case at say Cal where they pride themselves on some gaudy large uh, rejection uh, percentage where they have more kids that want to come in than they need or certain schools like that. but. For a whole chunk of colleges around the country now and going forward, they need enrollment dollars to continue to operate because colleges are closing their doors all over the country. And uh, and rugby is going to be a vehicle, along with other niche sports that they use to, to reach that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I've been a big believer that you, you call, for college rugby, especially bringing in from international students, being able to do that to be able to bolster that, um, you know, and, and just... That that idea, and I I love that you're able to really put it together very well because I think a lot of people miss the fact of what college sports always was. Like I remember listening to like a Nick Saban. And, you know, you will talk about, oh, man, he's making $6 million per year. But then you're like, he's just coaching. But you're like, no, he actually has to go to alumni. He has to, you know, shake them down for money. He's, you know, going to doing these pressers. And essentially, like you said, being a brand in front door for the teams on top of recruiting, on top of coaching, on top of having to win and do these championships. And I, I think a lot of people feel failed to realize what the purpose of sports in the college verse was to begin with, which was that, that or whether you're revenue generating or not. Um, Last question for you and, you know, I'll let you go. I, I, again, appreciate the time, you know, as a media person, um, you know, what is it that you want to be able to see in that area uh, to be able to help it grow? Like what, what do you want to be able to see uh, to help it expand? And then, I'll ask you again, as a coach, you know, what is it that you'd like to see as a coach, as a college rugby coach, to be able to help the sport?
1: Well, you know, I, I guess I'll combine the answers and say video. We want more video. You know, as a college coach, uh, and I, I think every college coach, if they're being honest, will agree, admit to this, that there's I sign kids all the time, based that even though I've never seen them play. And uh, that's because I have to go off coaches' um, uh, recommendations and what they say about them because I need players. And I don't have the recruiting budget to go sit in every kid's living room like Urban Meyer does for Ohio State and Nick Saban does for Alabama um, and John Calipari does for for Kentucky. We don't have that. I can't fly around and see all these games. So I wanna see more video from uh, a coaching perspective. And I wanna see more sophisticated um, uh, applications for video like huddle and and different coding and sourcing um, uh, applications be made available to rugby that would make my job a lot easier in terms of analyzing our team's performance and then teaching how to improve. And from the media perspective, I think that's what we all wanna to see too. I mean, we all sit on our phones every day when we're on the toilet or when we're at work or we're on the train <laughs> and we're consuming videos, we're consuming gifts, we're consuming small amounts of video and uh, I think that's a huge part of our daily media intake. And there's just not enough people producing video content in rugby Because it's so freaking expensive, as you can attest to.
0: Yes, yes. (laughs) I'd like to see
1: the advertising, the readership, the viewership get to a point where we can really support uh, Gift Time Rugby, where we can really support a flow of sports, where we can really support a next-level rugby and the people so we can produce more original American video content. I think that that's the next frontier for rugby media in the United States, and I think that um, it's definitely one from a coaching standpoint where that would help us a lot more. So I just kind of came up with that off the top of my head when you <laughs> asked me from a media coaching perspective. I was able to hopefully marry it together and make it it look look it it, it intertwined perfectly
0: like I I felt complete I was like you know what I I got nothing to touch on I got nothing you are just killing all my extra points No, but no. Thank you so much, man. Dude. This was how do you feel about this? (laughs) I had a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) awesome guys man, that was that was really good. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, you know, I always love, I, I know a lot of the reoccurring themes that will happen when in, in this podcast will always revolve around college and high school for me. And, you know, you can touch, and, and obviously touching on professional and national to some extent, but a lot of it is high school and rugby, beca- high school and college, because those are where the foundations of, of the development always comes from. That's the generational changes. So I know if you guys listen to this and you guys are, you know, trending and you hear the same thing over and over and you're like, why does he just keep bringing these up? It's because I think it's so important that we as a rugby community are focusing on developing not just the the field play but developing the community outside of rugby that's not simply just rugby people that's not simply just if you play then you get to enter into it you know it's developing a full uh full entertainment value and the the business behind doing it because in the end rugby is still entertainment even if it is a communal lifestyle that is a form of entertainment and play, so I always love basing around that because it's, it's, it's just dope, so um, I want to thank uh, Pat for his time to just being on here, uh, guys, uh, don't forget we post Tuesday and Thursdays on the time we get the chance to post, uh, uh, also you can find us on Facebook at Gift Time Rugby, on Twitter at Gift Time Rugby, Instagram at Gift Time Rugby, YouTube, Gift Time Rugby Network, and, uh, you know, we usually do broadcasts, but right now we're kind of on a slower end. It's the off-season. We're getting ready for some straight, strong content coming next year. So, posting just videos and memes and just a uh, little bit of information here and there. So, uh, don't think that we've forgotten or just slowing down for no reason. We got we got big stuff coming. But, guys, keep listening. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, please review and Rate this. Uh, we really love to find out, and I, I really am a masochist for information. Um, music is by Michael Armstead. You can find his music at Michael Armstead at Bandcamp.com. My name is Gift Gift Time and Balu. I hope you guys have a great day, and don't forget to live the rugby life. Cheers.